Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling Minrose Gwynn. Minrose Gwynn has taught at universities across the country, most recently at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is also a fiction, nonfiction, and memoir author. Her newest novel, Promise, takes place in 1936, opening as the fourth deadliest tornado in U.S. history hits Tupelo, Mississippi. The novel follows two women, one black and one white, as they attempt to salvage their lives and the lives of their families from the aftermath of the devastation. We spoke with Minrose about the history behind the novel, what inspired her to write it, and its resonance today. So joining us on the phone right now, we have Minrose Gwynn, author of Promise. And Minrose, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, Michael, for having me. Sure. Uh, So to start us off, let's talk a little bit about the tornado that is sort of the catalyst of the novel. And that's based off of an actual tornado, right? Yes, it it is. Uh, it, it was a historic tornado. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hit my hometown of Tupelo, Mississippi, on Palm Sunday, April fifth, nineteen thirty-six, right in at the height of the Great Depression, and uh, it was um, it was a F five on the Fujita scale, which is the highest level. Uh, the winds were up to 318 miles an hour, and it it wiped out half of the small city of Tupelo, uh, which was then around 7,000 people. Uh, And today, it remains the fourth most deadly tornado in the history of the United States, according to the official statistics, and I would emphasize official statistics. of 233 dead and 1,000 injured, many of them very severely injured. Hmm. And so this um, this is obviously going to be a very leading question, um, but how, how accurate are those numbers? That's what I found out. I grew up in Tupelo, and I grew up in my grandparents' house, which was one of the few left standing in the uh, tornado's path. And I heard these stories about the tornado all of my life, all my growing up time. Uh, and they were wild, wild stories, which I can relate in a few minutes. But um, what I learned just about seven years ago was that just kind of by accident was that the official um, casualty uh, statistics were inaccurate and perhaps very much inaccurate because uh, members of the African-American population of the town had simply not been counted. And when I learned this um, cold, hard fact, um, I, um, it, it, it um, gripped me. It made me very deeply angry. Uh, this is my town. This is my history, this is my community, and um, I just felt, even though I was in the middle of revising another novel, I just felt compelled to 
leap in and start this new novel, which eventually became Promise, because I just felt so much a responsibility to the story myself. Mm-hmm. And what, what were some of those um, crazy stories you had heard growing up about the tornado? Well, the stories, some, some parts of this book, uh, Promise, mm-hmm. uh, of the novel seem to be magical realism, but they're really not. They're really based in uh, newspaper accounts, oral histories, and so forth. Um, the In the aftermath of the tornado, the dead and the dying were strewn all over town. They were dangling from the limbs of trees, leafless trees, because the leaves had been blown off the trees. They were buried under debris and pinned to the bottom of this small lake called Gumpon and laid out in makeshift morgues all over town. Um, and just to give a few examples, um, members of a family of 13 uh, were caught, they were the Burroughs family, were blown in all directions. And this included uh, one of the members of the family was a um, newborn baby and all of them were killed. And so, um, and, and then there were, uh, at, there are at least, according to my research, five published accounts of flying children, um, particularly babies. My own grandmother found a baby a girl, a dead baby girl, in her one of her crepe myrtle bushes in the front yard and brought her into the house and laid her on the kitchen table and wrapped her in a dish towel. Uh, there was, um, there were quite a few wounded people brought into my grandparents' house because it was one of the few places left standing in town and op- operations were done on the dining room table. Um, in the Lyric Theater, where I just was recently, um, for the launch, uh, the hometown launch of this of this novel, um, there became the hospital. The theater became the hospital because the hospital had been very damaged, and operations took place on the stage of the Lyric Theater. Um, with people lying in the aisles of the theater, wounded, the wounded and the dying. Uh, The instruments were sterilized in the popcorn machine uh, and so forth. So there are many, many stories uh, that have circulated about the tornado and many of them are so wild and crazy you would think that they were made up. But what my research showed is um, that they weren't, that these, you know, a tornado can do very, very strange things. Mm-hmm. So jumping into the story a bit, um, the decision to make it a dual narrative, why did you make that choice? And was it always going to be that way when you started the novel? Um, the reason I made it a dual narrative is that, as I said, I've been, I, I felt like I had just heard um, being white myself. I felt like I had just heard the white side of the tornado story. And even though, of course, I'm limited uh, by by my positionality, uh, I felt um, 
very strongly that I wanted to try in my own limited way to uncover some of the lost history of the tornado. Um, I think in this case um, that um, um, history uh, had cleared much too tidy a path. Um, and I think sometimes it takes a, a fictional story to show the mess and confusion and anguish of the historical moment, what it felt like to live in that moment in all its human complexities. And so what I was really trying to do was to give both an account from the uh, point of view of the African American um, experience of that tornado in as much as I could. And so the, um, the two main characters are an African-American great-grandmother, a laundress who takes in clothes uh, to wash from uh, members of the white population and cleans them and takes them back to the house. She delivers, she picks them up and delivers them. And then a white teenage girl and um, I based the white teenage girl on my mother because my mother was 16 years old at the time of the tornado and she, like Joe, uh, my character, had already had a broken arm before the tornado and um, so she had, she, was, she had her arm in a cast the way that Joe does. And um, my, my African-American character, Dovey, um, I, um, I, was, I was thinking about the novel and how I would write it and how, I, I was, how angry I was at this omission um, of um, the uh, black experience in the Tupelo tornado history. Um, and um, I was looking over, I'm also a scholar of uh, and, and I work in women's literature and Southern literature, American literature, and uh, African American literature. And um, for example, my last my last book between my two novels uh, is um, Remembering Medgar Evers, writing the long civil rights movement about the uh, great civil rights leader in Mississippi. And so. Um, I, um, I was looking through a, a collection of photographs by Eudora Welty that she did for the Works Project Administration back in the 1930s because I thought, I want to see what people in the 1930s wore, I want to see what they did, and these are wonderful, wonderful photographs. Eudora Welty was a wonderful photographer as well as a wonderful writer. Mm -hmm. And um, I saw this picture of this uh, woman, uh, African-American woman, doing laundry in, on one of these old, uh, on her front porch, in one of these uh, old um, uh, tubs with the ringer on the side uh, that you that you work with your right arm or or left arm, I guess your left arm, and um, and I thought, yes, this is the character. This is the character because <clears throat> what Dovey does is, as she points out in the narrative, 
is that she can, she moves between the white and black communities because she's always going into white people's houses and getting their dirty clothes. She knows more about the white people than members of the whole family know about one another because she does their laundry. And um, and so I wanted to get that grasp that experience and I felt that I really needed a very wise African-American character so I not a young, naive African-American character the way Joe, the white girl, is a young and naive person um, because I wanted to I wanted to give uh, a very critical eye to the uh, racial injustice of the period uh, in, in this town. And I felt that Dovey would be the perfect person to do that. Mm-hmm. And did you did you consider it a challenge writing from Dovey's perspective, um, especially making her such a wise woman? Yes, <laughs> yes, I did. I felt I felt I felt it. What I, I was very challenged by it, and I was also very cautious about it. Mm-hmm. And I gave it a whole lot of thought before I did it, uh, because I'm someone who is quite aware. I, I mean, I've spent my whole life doing research in this field of Southern race studies and critical race studies. And I feel that I, um, and I'm speaking, just parenthetically I'll say I'm speaking in in kind of academic terms here because I know that I would love for this book to be taught in a classroom. And and I, um, but getting back to my point, I, uh, I I approached it very cautiously. I approached Dovey very cautiously. But I found myself, you know, sometimes characters just take off for you and they kind of want to do their own thing and, and they take on a life of their own. And I felt Dovey did that uh, for me. And um, and I felt very close to her as a character. I think that um, people say sometimes in, in, in teaching other writers, teaching um, uh, new writers, uh, that uh, you need to write about what you know. And I think that's true to a certain degree, but I also think that uh, a writer needs to always be pushing into what she or he doesn't know because that's, that's the, I guess, that's what the human, human connections are all about. And that's what fiction is all about, is human connection. Mm-hmm. And there was definitely this um, this very strange connection between Dovey and Joe as the novel goes on. Um, one thing I thought was very interesting, um, as you know, the um, the whole white savior narrative has been heavily criticized lately. Um, and there were certain points in the novel where I felt like Joe very much sees herself as this white savior who has this beautiful relationship with Dovey. She's like, oh, the woman who helped us, she loves us, and then she you know, enters Dovey's um, boxcar and Dovey's like, oh, it's this annoying girl again. Will she ever leave me alone? Yes. Yeah, and I, that was that was another reason that I felt that Dovey and Joe were a good match because what I did want to show is that um, misperception of that blindness, what I would call white blindness, mm-hmm. to the predicament of 
African American people uh, that it comes from white privilege. And so I wanted to show this kind of real disjunct between Joe's perception of her relationship to Dovey and to other African American characters and Dovey's perception of Joe mm -hmm. and her presumptuous uh uh, sense of herself and her and Dovey's relationship to her. Um, so that's why I that's why I paired them. That's another reason that I paired them. I wanted to show that split. That that I wanted to ride that kind of razor's edge, do that kind of balancing act uh, between those two perceptions. Mm -hmm. And going back onto the storm a little bit, one of the fascinating and I guess unexpected things for me when I went into this novel. Um, you know, knowing it's about the tornado in the beginning, I thought there was going to be this tornado and then it would be dealing with, you know, how do you pick up from here? But just the way you write about the um, the complications of the aftermath, you know, no power, the rain that comes after, every, all those things you had to consider, I thought was very compelling. Well, yes. And I think, I think that um, this tornado was... I mean, we have to think about this. The, the book is about natural disasters and our responses to them. It's also about racial injustice and it's also about sexual violence. So I feel like it speaks as much to the present and the future uh, as it does to the past, in a sense. In fact, I wrote an article for Salon recently um, contrasting the government response to the Tupelo, Mississippi tornado of 1936 when there was no, um, when there was no forms of many, hardly any form of communication or anything like that and how quickly government leapt in and, and managed that crisis, uh, uh, compared to, um, the rather anemic response to the Puerto Rico, uh, uh, crisis after Irma, uh, but um, yeah, the aftermath of the storm, an aftermath of a storm like this is extremely um, chaotic and nightmarish, and what I was trying to do is give a sense of the nightmarishness of the of the landscape. Mm -hmm. uh, all of the, Tupelo was a place that had many, many beautiful trees. Uh, my family settled in northeast Mississippi in the 1830s, uh, just after the um, Cherokees had been forced out. And my family came in uh, and settled that land. And uh, there were huge, huge trees uh, at that time, and many of them remained until the Tupelo tornado. Uh, trees that were so large, a half a dozen men couldn't stand around with their arms uh, outstretched and, and still encompass the trunks of these trees. Just huge oak trees and beautiful, beautiful vegetation. And all of that was gone. And so there's this kind of stripped, bare quality of the landscape um, that is um, that I was trying to convey. Uh, but um, ironically, this kind of stripped bare landscape enables Joe to kind of see beyond her uh, life in this town and see something different. 
and I hope that she changes over the course <laughs> of the novel and becomes more self-aware and more aware of herself in relation to Dovey and to other members of the black community. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought up the um, Irma because one of the questions I was going to ask you um, was whether you think this novel resonates today in any way. Um, are there any other things about the novel that you think are particularly relevant today? Yeah, uh, I, I as in in it's it it was a rather odd feeling uh, for me uh, finishing as I finished up the novel. And again, I, I just to to restate this, I, I've been working in the field of race relations in the South my entire uh, academic career. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first book was on slave women's slave narratives. Um, so um, the um, the as as I was finishing up the novel, uh, these events started unfolding in this country um, with Ferguson and and uh, uh, Charlottesville and Charleston and so forth and so on. And I started feeling this sense that um, the book that I had written about this historical moment in this very, very specific place and very specific uh, event had become was becoming more and more and more and more relevant. Um, there's also uh, a rape, as you know, in the book, and um, uh, sexual. Um, uh, predation by Joe's uh, older brother against both her and against uh, uh, Dovey's granddaughter, Dreema. And um, the all the issues around the Me Too movement have made me, given me this kind of sense of reverberation of the book and how some of the issues in the book are just being reenacted uh, even now, and um, which is, I think, quite worrisome for all of us. Mm-hmm. You know that this is that this is true. Quite disturbing. Uh, also, I lost a house in Katrina, and uh, in New Orleans, and I saw the government response to uh, the crisis in New Orleans in the aftermath of Katrina and the nightmarishness of that situation. And that has that is not our present right now, but that is the recent present, uh, recent past. And um, I think um, that has influenced me uh, subconsciously uh, to write this book also. Mm-hmm. So, Mimros, I just have one more question for you, um, and we're going to end on a lighter note. Um, so, since this podcast is primarily for um, teachers, educators, and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, that's <laughs> a great question. <laughs> my great, my great teacher, my favorite teacher was at the University of Tennessee. His name was Herman Spivey. <laughs> And he was a teacher of Faulkner, 
and he took us through every single Faulkner novel, just about. Mm-hmm. Well, not every one, but all the great ones, you know, <laughs> like about eight or ten of them. Uh, from The Sound and the Fury, through Go Down Moses, The Reavers, and so forth. And he took us through in this very, very careful, measured way and making us pay attention to the language, the sentence structure, the rhetoric, and so forth. And um, that, I think, I think that has had more impact on me and my own writing and so forth than any other, um, than, than any other teacher. Uh, so I will always remember dear Dr. Spivey. <laughs> All right, well, that's great. Uh, well, Minneros, thank you so much. This has been a delightful conversation to have. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. Great questions, and I really enjoyed it. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk to you. Of course. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.